In just a moment, I'm going to bring you our interview with Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning author and thinker about global economics. Uh, but before I do, I want, to, I want to give you some context. What we are trying to do with these interviews is help you understand more broadly what is happening. Uh, in terms of globalization, the issue is not globalization versus no globalization. It's not Trumpism versus simply throw up our hands and let free trade uh, be dominated by global corporations. No, the real issue here is what are the rules going to be? And underlying that issue, just as we say in our documentary, uh, Saving Capitalism, is a question and an underlying big, big, big question of power. Who has the power to set the rules? Uh, and that is what we are going to get into in just one moment. I'm joined today by an old friend, uh, Joe Stieglitz, who is a Nobel Prize winner and a public intellectual, a major voice in terms of not only the rules of the game for the economy, but the rules of the game for the global economy. Joe has pioneered a new way of thinking about globalization in his book, uh, Globalization and Its Discontents. This is the revisited, revised Globalization and Its Discontents I'm holding up for you all to see. Uh, Joe, uh, both thank you for being with me. We have uh, potentially, uh, you know, uh, 300 million people who are watching. That's just potential, of course. But uh, let me just ask you, uh, the, the central question, I, I remember that the the theme of globalization and its discontents was that the rules of globalization as they were being developed had been tilted toward the United States and against the developing world. Uh, now we have Donald Trump, and Donald Trump is, has convinced some Americans at least that globalization is bad and we need economic nationalism instead of globalization. What's your response to those Americans who feel that they've left been left behind and globalization is just simply bad. Well, that was precisely why I wrote the book, because, as you said, I wrote my original book about how globalization was unfair to those in the developing countries, emerging markets. And now Trump is saying it's unfair to the United States. I watched these trade negotiations for three decades, the United States got essentially everything it wanted. So the problem was with what we wanted. We had a global globalization agenda that was set by American multinational corporations, by the big international financial institutions. And what they wanted was a globalization that increased their profits at the expense of workers in both the United States and in the emerging markets and developing countries. So it's very simple. There are some big winners. It's the big corporations. And there are some big losers. And that's the workers both here and abroad. So you're saying, if I if I follow you, and I, I read your revisited, and I thought it was terrific, 
that um, it's not a choice between either globalization or no globalization. The real choice is between a globalization that works for the big global corporations, many of them headquartered in the United States, or a globalization that works for all of us, that is, developing nations and American workers. Now, I want to ask you two questions, Joe. One is, you and I were both there in the Clinton administration when some of these rules were being negotiated, uh, such as the World Trade Organization, Chinese ascension uh, to accession to the World Trade Organization, NAFTA. Uh, were you aware at that time that the Clinton agenda, if I follow your argument correctly, was really being dictated by big global corporations? Well, it was a little bit more cor uh, complicated because the Clinton administration inherited NAFTA from the Bush administration. I, I had a chance to ask uh, Mickey Cantor, who was the trade representative, is like our trade minister, was he aware of the, the provision like Chapter 11, which is the provision that gave so much power to American corporations, more property rights than they got in the United States? Uh, so foreign, when, when we our firms invest abroad, they're better protected against, say, a change in regulation than if they had invested in the United States, almost encouraging them to invest abroad. So I said, were you aware of that? And his answer was just uh, very similar to what I said. He says, I was told to sell NAFTA. We inherited NAFTA. I was told to do two things, put in some labor protections put in some environmental protections. They were called side agreements. He got those, but many of us were worried, I remember you were, about what this, all this would do to workers in America if they lost their jobs. We needed trade adjustment assistance. Uh, we got some, but we needed more. And uh, we were lucky, let me say, because in this period, the economy was being run tightly. That meant unemployment was very low. And so our economy was creating jobs as fast or even faster than we were losing jobs. The result of that was that even after NAFTA and these WTO, uh, our unemployment rate continued to fall. The real problems began at the turn of the century when we had the uh, tech bubble break in 2001, and then we had the terrible economic mismanagement during the Bush administration leading up to the financial crisis of 2008-9. At that point, we needed a strong fiscal stimulus, and, and the Republicans said we can't afford it, we can't go, go into the deficit, and that meant we had a very slow recovery. And with that weak economy, then job destruction outpaced job creation. And that's when you got the suffering that was so great in such a large part uh, of America. Uh, but Joe, uh, all of those macroeconomic and macroeconomic policy issues aside for just a moment, going back to something like, for example, chapter 11 of NAFTA, 
uh, when Mickey Cantor, who was the trade negotiator for Bill Clinton, acknowledged to you, as he acknowledged to me, that we, that is the Clinton administration, inherited NAFTA, and his instructions, Mickey Cantor's instructions, were to put in some labor protections, and later we got some more trade adjustment assistance, that is, some help for workers who needed retraining and communities that had to adapt. Uh, that Chapter 11, did it stay in, right there in NAFTA? It stayed there. That was not renegotiated. And again, to be fair, at that point, we didn't know how bad it was because there hadn't been very many cases. I think that's a very important point because, uh, you know, it was not only Chapter 11, but it was also the beginnings of this uh, this arbitration system that was outside the United States where a large corporation that felt that health, safety, and environmental regulations might impede its profits could use this extra outside the United States arbitration system to get some payment, reimbursement for any losses of due to health, safety, or environmental regulations, which came to full flowering in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. But that was that was started as my memory. My memory is that actually was there in NAFTA, though none of us actually knew it. Is that right? Exactly. And what was so ironic was, I don't, again, I don't know if you remember, we fought the Republicans on the issue of regulatory takings because there were many environmental, uh, anti-environmentalists in the Republican Party in Congress who wanted to have a provision on regulatory takings that said, if you change an environmental law and it costs me some money, you have to compensate me. We fought back against that. The courts supported us on that. Congress supported us on that. And yet, while we were fighting so hard on this issue inside the United States, in NAFTA, we let it go. Uh, we, we let it go in Mexico and in Canada. And so we gave American firms the right to sue in these countries where we said it's outrageous, you can't sue in the United States. So what we were doing is encouraging firms to, American firms, to move out of the United States if they wanted to get these protections. So your memory is very similar to mine. That is, we did not know you were at the Council of Economic Advisors. I was Labor Secretary. You know, we were pretty high up in the administration. We were engaged in discussions about NAFTA, just as we were engaged in discussions about the World Trade Organization. But we did not know to what extent there were kind of Trojan horses, if you want to use that expression, embedded in these kinds of uh, programs, these rules that would help global corporations headquartered in the United States, but not necessarily help American workers. Is that, again, I want to make sure that my my memory is correct, because since Your then, memory is exactly well, right. Well, th then sort of that raises the next question for me. Uh, why were we ignorant? I mean, why didn't anybody know? We were, I mean, we, <laughs> you know, we're supposed to be in control. Are you suggesting that these global companies and their lobbyists and the people that surrounded the Democrats and even the Clinton administration were very, very sly and knowledgeable, and they had been at it a very long time, and they hoodwinked us? Uh, sort of. I mean, look at, uh, 
we didn't have time. We're not lawyers to uh, you are a lawyer, but I wasn't a lawyer to read these massive agreements and figure out we never had a meeting where we said, what is our view on this? Is this good economics? Never happened. Uh, so we it just wasn't presented to us as an issue where I feel it was a little bit unconscionable of the Obama administration, because by then we had a record. Canada had been sued, lost, um, and we began to hear some of the things that you, you talked about sly lawyers. One of the Canadian lawyers who played a uh, instrumental role in getting this provision written um, is quoted as proudly as saying that uh, if we put plutonium in baby cereals and you try to stop us and we lost profits, we could sue. So they thought this was a great achievement that they had done. I think it's one of the most abysmal pieces of legislation I've ever seen. And so uh, the, the Clinton administration, we did not know, should have known. Maybe we were just, uh, you know, we had a lot of other things to focus on. But you're saying by the time of the Obama administration, there really wasn't very much excuse for a Democratic administration not to have known what was going on with a lot of these rules. Uh, let's, let's just assume that the George W. Bush administration didn't care or was already in the pockets of uh, some of these large global, global firms. Uh, but uh, Obama, you think the Obama administration might have done more? Oh, very much so. And the interesting thing is that uh, the European government, uh, European Commission, began to rethink this issue when we proposed having a trade agreement with Europe. They made it very clear they would not accept a TPP version of this investment agreement. And I don't know if you remember, there were 10,000 Germans on the street over this issue. So it became a, a very big issue in Europe. And Obama could have said, now I see, you know, a lot of people are very concerned, a lot of democratic protests. Uh, let's create a new higher standard where we have a better judicial standard, uh, a clearer view of what is being protected, that you can't override uh, issues of health, safety, uh, soundness of the environment. Um, we could have done that, but he chose not to. So on the TPP, on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, on several of these other rules uh, that found their way into trade agreements sponsored and pushed by global corporations, you and I are in agreement with Donald Trump that the TPP, at least, should not have been, should not go forward. Uh, where do you differ specifically, or at least put it, let me put it slightly differently. If you right now were advising Donald Trump on trade, what would you say specifically are the three or four major changes in global rules governing trade that need to be made so that workers in the America, in the United States, and also developing nations can both do better as opposed to just global corporations doing better. Yeah, so I like the way you put that. Globalization, if it's well-managed, can be of benefit to workers on both sides. So the problem isn't with globalization itself, it's the problem with, with 
how we've managed it and how we've let the big corporations write the rules for their benefit. So where you could, for instance, for instance uh, begin, uh, one of the things that very interestingly, the other TPP countries uh, have already begun to do is that we put a set of provisions that made access to generic medicines more difficult. So American workers would have to pay higher prices. And of course, in poorer countries, uh, higher prices mean no access to medicine, more people would die. And uh, that was a particularly iniquitous aspect of it, was big pharma against generic medicine. I talked to all the trade negotiators, the health negotiators, except one refused to come, and that was the United States, uh, and talked to them about you know, how they could negotiate uh, another framework. They didn't have to do it this way. This was uh, a gift to big pharma and a curious gift because big pharma is one of the big tax avoiders. They don't create many jobs in the United States. Um, and now the other TPP countries have decided to go ahead without these provisions. So this is already happening uh, in the case of TPP. Well, it's happening uh, in, in these other countries, you're saying. I mean, the United States yes. basically threw out the baby with the bathwater and rejecting TPP. But what I hear you saying right now is that there could have been maybe a, the best position would have been accepting TPP, but taking out these negative provisions, these provisions that hurt average workers. Is that what you're exactly? Yeah, exactly. We're going to take out the negative provisions, the investment agreement that we've been talking about. Uh, we could uh, have put in uh, better labor standards to say that these other countries, uh, all countries, had to uh, have uh, compliance with the core labor standards, uh, uh, so that uh, the uh, abuse of market power uh, on the base of corporations against workers would be limited. Uh, this is actually... Uh, one of the reasons... Uh, Joe, if, if I can interrupt you just on that point specifically, because in the NAFTA renegotiations right now, there is an opportunity for Canada to push back against the United States, corporations in the United States, and say that our negative labor standards... Uh, that is, our, the way corporations are making it difficult for workers to organize constitutes a non-tariff barrier that makes it harder for Canada to do well in its trade with the United States. Uh, is that a possibility? I think that's a wonderful idea to say, look, at if, uh, especially between the United States and Canada, two countries with the same standards of living, uh, it is an unfair trade practice to say that you can bash workers. You don't have standards in overtime. Uh, that that uh, uh, So I think this is really an opportunity to use a trade law to lift the standards. What had happened before, and let me emphasize why the investment agreement was so important. Uh, an American firm could go to its workers and say, if you don't take lower wages except work worse working conditions, we're going to move our factory abroad, get labor at a lower wage, and by the way, we get more job protection abroad 
more we get more uh, property protection abroad. These uh, protection against a change in regulations on environment or anything else than we have at home. So it's more attractive. So this investment provision was actually a provision to encourage American firms to make move abroad and to increase their bargaining power against American workers. Uh, we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon, Joe, but I want to just summarize what I hear you saying. And uh, I think it's exactly what I believe as well. And that is that the issue is not trade or non-trade. The issue is not globalization or not globalization. The issue is what are the rules going to be and how do we ensure that the rules help American workers and developing nations and all people around the world and not just or primarily improve the profitability of American international, American-based companies. Uh, and, and so your instruction or your suggestion, and if I were ever asked, and if pigs could fly, uh, and Trump asked me about globalization, I would say the same thing. Uh, the, the, the issue is making international agreements work for everybody instead of just people at the top. Is that kind of the bottom line here? That, that's, exactly, that's exactly right. And you have to... Uh, the, one of the reasons this is so important is that inequality has been growing in the United States uh, to such a great extent. I mean, if if corporations uh, uh, hadn't been doing so well, if American workers have been doing very well, this would be just a, a, little, a little debate. But what has happened is American workers are not doing very well. You know, median income of a full-time American worker, male worker, and the lucky ones, the ones who have a full-time job, is roughly the same as it was 42 years ago, adjusted for inflation. So they've not been doing very well. But if you look at the numbers on pro corporate profits, they've been soaring. So, so, it, so it's not exactly the time to reduce corporate taxes and taxes on the wealthy, is it? No, it's not, nor is it a time to reduce the taxes on corporations. And it's especially not the time to do it without closing the loopholes uh, that are pervasive. Uh, and, uh, you know, the report just came out today of the benefits that Apple alone, one company, was going to get from this tax in the tens of billions of dollars to one company. Uh, the company that is the largest company in the world now by market valuation, you know, in a world in which inequality is so large, uh, workers are doing so poorly and the corporations are doing so well, to give another gift to those who are doing well and a pittance at most to everybody else. In fact, by 2027, uh, more than half of those in the second, third, and fourth quintiles, that's me and people uh, in the middle, you know, except the top and the very bottom, more than half will have a tax increase. In other words, the people there will be financing uh, the tax decrease for the billionaires and the corporations. And that doesn't even include the cuts in Medicare and Medicaid and Social Security and poor people's programs that may be required in order to pay for all of this. But this gets us a little bit onto a different topic. Uh, Joe, I really want to thank you for your time and thank you for your work 
and thank you for being the voice of reason. And, uh, and you know, eventually they're going to listen. <laughs> I hope. And thank hope, you. And I want to catch up with you personally soon for coffee, but thank you for doing this. Okay. Thank you. Resistance Report is a production of Inequality Media and is hosted by me, Robert Reich, and produced by Sasha Lightman. This episode was edited by Chris Lucas with music by Nick Deicher. And please be sure to let your friends know about this new podcast. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts so other people will be able to discover and make use of what we're doing here. 